Check it, check it. There we go. All right. Uh, doing a little housekeeping on the stage to get us set up. So go ahead and grab your Bible. Grab something to write on and with. Go ahead and get comfortable. Settle into your first-class seat on the airplane, right, uh, while we're going. Uh, we're going to look at a passage from Isaiah 42. So you can go ahead and uh, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you under the seats in front of you. And if you need one, feel free to take that. That's our gift uh, to you. If you're new to the Bible, feel free to open any copy of the scriptures. Always going to have a table of contents at the front, and you can find the book of Isaiah. And we're about midway into that book in chapter 42. So that's going to be roughly right in the middle of your Bible, if you're unfamiliar uh, with the text there. What I want to do as we get started this morning is ask you to imagine a perfect society. Take 10 seconds. Imagine a perfect society. What would utopia look like? If you polled 100 people, my guess is you would find roughly similar things on our mental conception of a utopia. There would be peace. No war or violence of any sort, not even a threat of that happening. There would be equality. People, regardless of their background, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their gender, would be treated with worth and value. There would be abundance. Everybody would have enough. Uh, no one would take advantage of other people for the benefit of themselves. And there would probably be beauty, something like a national park or a perfect walk in the woods or a gorgeous day at the beach. Everywhere you looked, you would do a double take and in awe. It wouldn't look like this. Check these pictures. We can advance the slots. Yeah. This is a couple of weeks ago in Skid Row in L.A. Uh, I was trying to be judicious with the camera and not take pictures of people on their worst day on the street. But six by six, by six block, um, tens of thousands of people just li living on the streets. We can flip to the next picture. It wouldn't, that, that's not it, right? I think we would all agree. Or it wouldn't look like this either. The current Ukraine crisis. The pictures that flash across our news feeds or our social media scroll, we would all agree that this isn't it. In fact, it would be the exact opposite of our mental framework for what perfect society would look like. Well, here's the rub. For thousands of years, really smart people have been trying to organize a perfect society. Leaders ranging from government leaders to economists to philosophers have been attempting to say, can we put the pieces together to get us as humans to our mental conception of what utopia would look like? And there have been times when it seems like certain societies have started to put pieces together that move the needle in the right direction. We've never been able to arrive at picture-perfect society and maintain it for any length of time. Things always unravel, leaving us with the wishful dream, wouldn't it be nice if things actually worked like they're supposed to? And this wishful thinking captures the essence of what Isaiah is writing about in Isaiah 42. We're looking at the middle uh, scenes of this book, and we've selected this in the next three passages um, that will be taken from the middle of Isaiah, uh, certain songs or poems that are written there, to provide a bit of uh, lead-up to our Easter celebration. 
We want to reflect on Jesus, whose resurrection we'll celebrate by reminding ourselves, what is it that makes Jesus great? Why should this be a celebration? As an act of service to you on the table to my left, your right, up here in the front, we've put out some books for you to grab. Uh, all the books are 15 bucks, just honor system. You could drop it in the bucket in the front and any of these um, stands here. You can use the QR codes in the back. I'll highlight two for you this morning, this little devotional book by Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson's a Presbyterian pastor who writes beautifully rich uh, resources to serve the church. And this one is written around Easter. They are two-page daily reflections in the weeks leading up to Easter. So if you're a family, this would be a wonderful thing to take and read over breakfast or at dinner. And uh, it asks you just like two good thought-provoking questions at the end of each daily read. So this by Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, this book by John Stott would be another example of that. Stott is an Anglican uh, pastor in London who in, I believe it was 2005, made the Time 100 list of the most influential people in the world. He rose to prominence in 1974, crafted the Luzon Statement, which basically was the formation of the group that we now know as evangelicals, kind of crafted. What, what does it mean for multi-denominations to get around and under the supremacy of Jesus in all things? Stott's foremost writing his seminal work is this, The Cross of Christ, it's a fascinating guide through what did the cross of Jesus actually accomplish? If you want to deep dive into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I commend these two books to you. This morning's sermon is designed to get us focusing on that task using the prophet Isaiah's words. What makes Jesus great? Isaiah 42, I'll read the entirety of verses 1 through 9. The prophet writes, this is my servant, I strengthen him. This is my chosen one, I delight in him. I put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. The coast and the islands will wait for his instruction. This is what God, the Lord, says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I've called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you. I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, those sitting in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, this is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. The past events have indeed happened. Now I declare new events. I announce them to you before they occur. Anytime we drop into a new book, it's important, I say this in virtually every sermon, to place ourselves to get our feet on the ground uh, in a new passage. And the book of Isaiah is a notoriously difficult book to place yourself. Those who think and write about the Bible differ, or have differed, on how we should break up the main flow of the book of Isaiah. 
at risk of oversimplification for our purposes, I just want to point out a common line of demarcation in the book. Chapters 1 through 39, uh, so immediately preceding our text, are thought to be written by Isaiah during Isaiah's life about what is happening then. During Isaiah's life about what is happening then. So in the first 39 chapters, we get a ton of facts, we get a ton of people, and we got to get a ton of specifics about what's happening. This would be 8th century. What's happening to the people of God, to Israel, during that time. So think probably the most familiar passage in the first half of Isaiah would be Isaiah 6. How does Isaiah 6 start? This uh, picturesque view, Isaiah, of God in his temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So that specific, we've got a specific place, a specific time, and it's happening then. Starting in chapter 40 and moving forward to the end of the book, to chapter 66, this is Isaiah writing, probably at a later time, about things that are going to happen in the future. Future promises that are going to be fulfilled, uh, both during the life of Jesus and ultimately when Jesus returns again. And often in chapters 40 through 66, it's difficult to untangle. Is he writing about what Jesus is going to do during his earthly ministry or what he's going to do when he comes back and puts this whole thing back together again? This is really good news, the second half of this book, because Isaiah is speaking in the first half of the book about the assurance of an exile that's going to come. He's telling uh, Israel, hey, you guys are getting ready to get crushed because of your idolatry. But second half of the book, there's something really good coming that should give you hope. If you were to sit down and read the entire latter section, so speaking of chapters 40 to 66, in one sitting, you notice something specifically about the chapters in the 40s and 50s range. You would notice that the style of writing shifts for Isaiah. He's doing a lot of history work in the first 39 chapters. And by the time we get to chapter 40, he starts uh, writing really poetic uh, summaries. We've got a lot of poems. We've got songs written here. And noticeably, in chapters 40 and 50, uh, we have some common words used in these songs. Perhaps the most familiar of those, the one we'll consider on Easter Sunday, is found in Isaiah 53. Yet he himself bore our sickness. He carried away our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we were healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. I would imagine that if you've been around church for any length of time, this is a passage that you likely memorized or have heard quoted and certainly have sung in many of our familiar praise and worship courses. This is a poem about a coming one who's going to save God's people. And the linking term in this description is one that Isaiah uses throughout the 40s and early 50s chapters. Notice this, Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. If we rewind the tape to Isaiah 50, verse 10, see a similar theme. Who among you fears the Lord and listens to his servant, or in Isaiah 49. 
And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and God is my strength. He says, is it not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel? Or in our passage this morning, it begins with these words. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. So in these poems, hymns, songs, Isaiah pictures a coming one who he refers to over and over again as a servant who's going to come and put back together a world that's been broken by sin. So uh, those who comment on the book of Isaiah link these passages together and refer to them as the servant songs of Isaiah. Under this consistent header of the servant who is going to come and written in this poetic or song-like fashion. And each of these servant songs gives us a glimpse of what the servant is going to be like and what he's going to do. So if you're taking notes this morning, that's actually a really helpful way to map this text. And I think it's a helpful way to map each of the four or three sermons that's going to come. What's the servant going to do? What are his actions? Secondly, what's he going to be like, his character? And specifically, let's, we'll link those two. What's he going to be like as he does the actions that are described? And then lastly, and almost as an aside in these songs, is going to be, what, what do we do as a response? So the actions of the servant, the character of the servant, and then what do we do in response? So let's start with the first one. What's the servant going to do? If you listen attentively or just were watching in your Bible as we were reading, there's probably no mistake in your mind how I'm going to describe the actions of the servant because Isaiah is really helpful for us in repeating it. There's one specific thing, one specific word is used three times in the text that Isaiah uses to say, here's what this servant's going to do. And interestingly, in each of the four servant songs we look at, there's going to be one specific action that's described. It's going to be different in each of the songs. It's as if Isaiah was packaging them together to, to almost preach a four-part sermon. Here's one thing the servant's going to do. Here's another thing the servant's So in my text this morning, the servant is going to bring justice. He's going to bring justice. Verse 1, and I use the description 1B, which simply means the second half of the verse, 1A being the first half, 1B being the second half, often stanzas with poems are written in that fashion. He will bring justice to the nations. Fast forward to 3B, he will faithfully bring justice. Or then 4B, he's going to do this until he's established justice on the earth. So in our passage this week, the main thing the servant's going to do is bring justice. Now this is a really tough word. Uh, because we have strong mental word association with the term justice. Our minds don't do justice to the term justice. See, see what I did there, all right? Uh, when we hear justice, most of our minds drift to the law court. When someone gets the due penalty for their wrongdoing. In fact, this word is often linked to the victim of a crime. When friends or family 
hold a sign for the victim saying justice for and then fill in the blank. Right? We want somebody to get the due punishment for the wrong that they have done. This word association is like an interstate sign to Columbia on your way to Myrtle Beach. You're heading in the right direction, but you're not there yet. Okay? Baked into the idea of the judicial concept of justice is this idea of right and wrong. Justice means right wins. It means wrong or, wrongs are punished. That evildoers are held accountable for their actions. But all of us know that this concept of justice doesn't go far enough. It's not really justice when a perpetrator of a heinous crime is sentenced to life in prison without parole. The penalty doesn't right the wrong. It merely provides some sense of retribution or vindication for the crime that's been committed. True rightness would mean that the crime was never committed in the first place. True justice would be the world we envisioned in the opening, a world in which those things actually don't happen, that good always prevailed, that people lived in harmony and love, that joy, beauty, and peace won the day. This is justice. And now we're almost to the fullness of the linguistic concept of justice as the scriptures use it. Justice refers to a world that's experiencing the full potential of what God created it to be. It's a world where right always prevails, where wrong is always punished. Everything is right all the time. Justice here speaks of the world that God, in, that God created, the world that God designed before sin entered and broke this reality. There's an odd Old Testament passage that helps us here. In Exodus 26, you don't need to turn there, but God's telling Moses how he wants to be worshipped in the tabernacle, how he wants uh, uh, people to, to, to come to him, to approach him, uh, as they move to the promised land. And if you remember the kind of sticky pages of your Bible that uh, are really hard to read, there's a lot of like odd measurements and specific woods that are described and that lay out. I mean, God's just really, really precise with, this is how you are to worship me. I've got a plan in my mind and I want you to do it exactly as I planned and in conclusion, he tells Moses, this is Exodus 26, 30, if you're taking notes. You are to set up the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you've been shown on the mountain. The phrase translated there, according to plan, is the same word that's translated justice in Isaiah 42. Justice means that things always go according to plan. Justice pictures a world that plays out exactly according to a design. The easiest way to think about this is to imagine the opposite, and that won't be difficult. You have a mental picture for the upcoming weekend. You've worked hard, and you envision some things you want to do to rest, recover, and enjoy the people that God has put around you. Does it always go according to plan? Almost never, right? 
It rains, the kids wake up sick, there's a pipe that bursts in your home, you twist your ankle in your morning run, you just wake up and you feel blah. Things don't go according to plan. We're pretty bad, actually, at manufacturing a life where things go according to plan. Sin makes it impossible for us to live according to plan, even our own plan, which is why we need the servant that's pictured in this text. He's going to bring a world where things always go according to plan. And notice, too, the scope of this according to plan, the scope of this justice. He's going to make all things go according to plan for Israel? No, that's not what the text says. Twice in our mentions, we see he's going to bring justice to who? The nations. He's going to bring justice, the other passage, to the entire earth. The servant is going to bring a world where everything goes according to plan for everyone everywhere. That's awesome. That's the world that we were talking about in the opening paragraphs. It's the world that nobody's been able to manufacture or create. And Isaiah pictures a servant who's going to make this happen. Which then brings us to the second question. What's he going to be like when he's doing this? What's he going to be like when he's creating a world where everything goes according to plan? It's character-like. And this is where it gets really interesting and perhaps super convicting for us. What's the servant going to be like when he gets justice? The easiest way to capture this idea is to hold up a mirror to your life and to say, what are you like when you're trying to get things to go according to plan? How do you act when you're seeking justice? Maybe all you need to do this morning is to think about the path of getting to church on time this morning. That's one that often doesn't go according to plan, does it? Especially if you have little kiddos. So what do you do? Most of us bull in a china shop it. We grab the kid a breakfast bar, some slightly matching socks, and throw them in the van and hope we arrive. We huff and puff to express our dissatisfaction. You might even raise your voice and speak harshly to your spouse on the way as you're walking up to the, par up the parking lot steps. We struggle to seek justice in God-glorifying ways. The description that Isaiah uses could literally be the, the polar opposite of the way most of us try to get according to plan. Look back at verse 2. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. First, he's not going to cry out. He's not going to shout. He's not going to make his voice heard. He'll make things go according to plan, not by the force of his personality or the strength of his body. He won't yell, manipulate, or draw attention to himself. He'll be calm, measured. Secondly, he won't break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick. These aren't mental pictures that we have, but would be tremendously common in the time of the writing. It's simply a picture that says he's not going to crush people. He's not going to crush people who are already living in a world that is not utopia. 
Matthew uses this passage in chapter 12 uh, in his gospel to speak of Jesus' interaction with the broken, the marginalized, the lame, and the sick. He says he's not going to crush you. He's not going to put out a flame that's already barely flickering. These are the ones that would be easily discarded if you were trying to put the world back together again, if you're trying to make things go according to plan, then the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks are the easiest ones you just want to wipe out. But instead of writing them off, Jesus writes them into his grand story. And this is good news for a bunch of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks sitting in chairs and Christ Fellowship Cheerio. He doesn't crush you, but he gently and tenderly woos you. And then lastly, he's not going to grow weak or discouraged. Man, isn't this the greatest temptation when you try to make something go according to plan in a broken world? You just give up. It's hard. This stinks. But not this servant. He'll expend great power to put things right. But his battery won't drain while he's doing it. His internal reserves will never run out. And though the servant will suffer unjustly, point that these servant songs are soon going to make, he's not going to get discouraged either. He'll persevere until he's done what he came to do, which is put the world back together again. Before we consider how we should then respond, there's an interesting addition into our song. I did a pump fake, and so if you're a critical note taker, you're going to be seriously angry at me. And it's okay. This was intentional. This is not an add-on. But we're going to add a point uh, into our notes because I, I think it helps us see the nature of this text. So before we see what we should do in response, there's a new actor that shows up in this text. He shows up in verse 1 and then later in verses 5 and 6. We might frame this question this way. Who's on the side of the servant? Who's going to help the servant do these things? The easiest way to see this would be to look at verse 1. I hope this shows up on the slides as I intend. Yeah, great. Okay, so the blue text here is going to be the one we've been describing. It's going to be the servant who's being mentioned here in the text. But he's not the only principal actor in this passage. The red passages here refer to God the Father, the one who is acting on the side of the servant doing some things. We don't have time to mention these, but it's worth noting the specific activity of the one who is on the side of the servant. What's the red person in this passage doing? He strengthens the servant, verse 1. He delights in the servant, verse 1. He puts his spirit on his servant. This is one of the high watermarks of the concept of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Baked into Isaiah 42, we see all three members, persons of the Trinity, working together in tandem to accomplish this great work. He gives his spirit to his servant. Then in verses 5 and 6, he holds the servant by the hand. He watches over the servant. And he appoints the servant to do the specific work of putting the world back together again. God the Father is on the side of the servant. Which begs the question, who is the servant to whom God the Father is going to act this way? 
Who is this mystery figure in the text? I won't steal the thunder thunder of the next passages, because really when combined together, they help us see visually and clearly and specifically who this servant is. By the time we get to Isaiah 53, it will be unmissable. But it's not super cryptic even here in Isaiah 42. This one, look at verse 6b. He's going to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. He's going to open blind eyes to bring the prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. This isn't going to be the last time we hear something like this in the servant songs. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Is it not enough to you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel? I'll make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Those who are familiar with the Old Testament story of the scriptures are going to see very clearly these overtones that actually run all the way back to places like Genesis 12, where God first calls Abram to himself and says, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. Through you and through your family's lineage is going to come one who's going to save, going to bring together all of God's people. Galatians 3, Paul picks up on this theme in Scripture. Seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, in your people, all the nations will be blessed. The promise from all the way back in Genesis 12 is that one would come through Abram's line who would be a blessing to the nations. It's what Israel was actually meant to do, which is why you'll specifically see some of these passages applied to Israel, to God's people. They're supposed to be a light to the nations, to bring salvation to all people. But they fail miserably in that task. And so God appoints a servant who's going to do what Israel was supposed to do but failed. And what is the servant going to do? He's going to fulfill God's covenant promises. And what's the sign that's baked into this passage? Well, it's verse 7. He's going to open blind eyes. He's going to bring prisoners from dungeons, those sitting in darkness from prison houses. And if you're reading this passage and you've read through the gospel stories before, you're like, man, there are lights flashing on my dashboard all over the place. And one of those lights that should flash on your dashboard would be a passage like Luke 4. Jesus is in the temple before he begins his public ministry. He takes a scroll, and what does he do? Incidentally, turns to the prophet Isaiah and reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These words are actually not taken from Isaiah 42, but from Isaiah 61. But like I mentioned before, these poems are picking up on the same themes consistently. Notice the clear overlap in what I just read. Verse 18, God's spirit is on him. He's preaching to the blind. He's proclaiming release to the prisoner. In other words, Jesus is the one who's making all things right. He's bringing justice. He's bringing a world back into accordance with God's 
plan. Just why in another passage in Luke 7, uh, disciples are like, is this really the Messiah? Should, should we be looking for somebody else? They go and ask questions, and the report comes back to them. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Is he the Messiah? One of the clear ways you know, at least from Isaiah 42, is you start to see signs of what the Messiah was pictured to do. He's going to make blind see. He's going to release prisoners. He's going to make the lame walk. So when you start to see this, you better start looking for the servant. This, this is the one. Now, again, we're going to pick up some other dots along the way. By the time we get to Isaiah 52 and 53, we're going to see one who lays his life down, substitutes himself. But the first clue, the first Reese PC on the floor leading us along the path to get to Jesus as this servant is pictures like this. From Isaiah 42, blind see, lame walk. Which then leads to the final question. What do we do in response? There's no shortage of ways to answer this question. For example, if I had time, we could note that the first followers of Jesus picked up on this idea and applied it to their mission. In fact, if you just make a note to look at Acts 13, you're going to see Acts 13, the apostles, in fact, it's on the text here, Paul and Barnabas uh, boldly replied, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. Advance the slide, please. There we go. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So the early apostles understood their mission as a continuation of Jesus' mission really fascinating for us to even think about as a church. We step into the mission of the early apostles that is Jesus' mission. But that's not where the text leaves us in Isaiah 42. It's not where the text leads us. Put your eyes back in the scriptures. Notice beginning in verse 8. I am the Lord, that's my name. I'll not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. The past events have indeed happened. Now I declare new events. I announce them to you before they occur. That seems a little bit like a stutter step outside of the passage. But if we rewind the tape to, verse, uh, to chapters 38, 39, and 40, one of the big points that God's making there is you're going to get kicked off the land because you're worshiping a bunch of idols. You're giving praise to a bunch of things that are not God. I'm going to send you a servant, and you should worship him as God. And in fact, that is where the text leaves us. Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the ends of the earth. What's the response that's baked into Isaiah 42? It's to sing. That's what we're to do. That's where this servant song leaves us. Sing praise to the servant who is Jesus Christ. Seems odd. Why sing? Couldn't you come up with something bigger? Like, go obey. But singing is all about attributing worth. 
When we sing to God, we're doing two things at the same time. One, we're putting attention on him. We're saying that he is what the Bible says he is. That he's worthy of glory and honor. That idols are of no worth. That he alone is worthy of all. And equally important in our singing, we're putting attention on him and we're taking it off of ourselves. We're stopping what we're doing. We're not scrolling our social media feeds. We're doing something that's kind of awkward and clumsy, particularly in a big group if you have a bad voice. You're, you're saying out loud that I'm humbling myself to give worth to another and that he is the only one who's rightfully due that honor and glory because to a bunch of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, he didn't crush, but he chose to save. And he didn't do it by the force of his personality. He did it out of love. He called you. He saved you. He chose you to be his. And how did those who've responded to that glorious invitation respond? We sing. We honor this suffering servant. So that's what we're going to do in part as we close. Before the band comes, I want to invite you um, two minutes of silent uh, reflection. Uh, we'll just still ourselves, whatever the Spirit pressed on you from his word this morning, whatever prayer you need to pray. One particular outcome could be just praising God for this servant, the one who's come to begin the work now that he'll finish one day of making everything go according to plan. And just heightened anticipation for that day. After a couple minutes of silent reflection, I'll invite the band to come and lead us to practice singing a song to the Lord. God, we thank you that we cannot trust our eyes. That in spite of what we see around us, 
uh, you are working to put all things back together again. And that through this servant, we have hope that things will go according to plan. We thank you that one snapshot of that for those of us that are in Christ is the fact that you have taken our sinful state and because of Jesus' work, you have made us alive, you've declared us to be righteous, you've given us your spirit, you've placed us in your church. We thank you that for Christians, we're a living testimony of you putting things back together. And you, you're doing that through Jesus and his work, through this servant. And so, would you cause us to sing to you uh, in these moments and then throughout our lives, would, would the worshipful obedience of your people be directing worth and honor to you and away from ourselves? Trusting that you're continuing this good work and inviting us into that mission. As we sing now, we pray that you would receive a piece of the glory and work that you're doing. Pressing.